morning, Gospel Hope. How you guys doing? That's good. That's good. It is um, two things that I love. Um, God's word and God's people. And um, I, am, I am excited to um, bring God's word this morning. Amen. Let us, let us pray. Father God, we thank you and we praise you for um, who you are. Thank you for your word. Lord, we thank you, O oh Lord, for your people. Lord God, open up our eyes, open up our hearts to hear from you. Um, help us to behold wondrous things from your law. We give you thanks and we give you glory. In Jesus' name, amen. If we can read um, James chapter 1, verse 12 through 18 again, that'll be, that'll be great. It says, Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it, is, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. The letter of James implies that the Jewish believers were probably poor who had to deal with some, some social issues like wealthy landlords and oppressing them and, and rich people who dragged them in the courts and blasphemed Christianity as we see in chapters 2 and 5 of James. And we can only imagine the various other trials uh, that they went through. And because of this, verses 12 through 18 were very necessary to the health of these believers. And because we go through trials, it's very necessary for our health as well. So the main idea here, in this passage, I believe that James is striving to cultivate a godly perspective on trials within the hearts and minds of believers. So the title of my message is Cultivating um, a Godly Perspective on trials. And I have three points which I believe James stresses in this passage. Remember our reward. Realize the source of our temptation and recognize who God is in light of our temptation and trials. Once again, remember our reward. Realize the source of our temptation and recognize who God is in light of our trials and temptation. Verse 12 tells us, blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life. In verses 2 and 3, we learn that we ought to count it all joy when we meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces maturity. Now, we know that now in this particular verse that we're, we're, we're told to be blessed. As Ryan mentioned in his sermon a couple of weeks ago, this perspective is counterintuitive. We have often heard the phrase when asking church folks, how you doing? And we will, we will respond, blessed and highly favored. Or when someone does something good to us, we'll say such and such was a blessing. So to be blessed is to have God's divine grace or favor, but it's not always expressed in favorable circumstances. Matthew chapter 5 verse 10 and 11 says, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you 
when, you, when others revile you and persecute you and, or, and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. So we know that what it means to be blessed doesn't always produce a favorable outcome. So how often do we associate enduring a trial as a blessing? We don't naturally think this way. And I believe the reason why is because trials are hard. Trials are long and, and sometimes go unresolved. Every narrative doesn't end like the story of Job where we, our fortunes are restored and our latter days become better than our former. Sometimes we go to our graves with cancer. We don't always get that promotion or we don't always find a spouse. So who are the blessed ones that James is speaking about in this passage? The text tells us, he says, it's the person that remains steadfast under trials. We must stand firm in the faith. If our feet are planted and rooted in any other thing outside of Christ and him crucified, we will be uprooted when trials come our way. About a month ago, I took my family to the beach down in Amelia Island. And um, Skylar, she loves the water. So she proceeded to get in the water with her little floaties attached to her chest. And as she tiptoed in the water, and quickly, as you know, anyone been to the beach, the current picks up very quickly as you get into the water. So she proceeded to tell me, Daddy, hold me, hold me tight. So as we, I picked her up, and so as we got deeper in the water, she kept squeezing me tight because of the current. And she was losing her footing when she was in the water. So for Sky, I was her firm foundation in the midst of those waves. She was no longer losing her footing. So when the waves, the waves were not going away, and in fact, the current was getting stronger as we got deeper into the water. But she knew she wasn't going under because she was in her father's arms. So who are you clinging to when the waves of life starts crashing against you? Are you standing firm in the faith? Are you remaining steadfast in the faith when trials come? The text also tells us, it says, bless is the man who remains steadfast under trial. So why are we blessed? The text tells us, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. James' intent was to encourage his first audience and us, um, and he does this by getting us to set our minds on the promise of God versus the problems of our world. Eternal life is our reward. It's similar to the imperishable wreath that Paul speaks about in 1 Corinthians chapter 9 when he says that the athlete exercised self-control in all things to receive a, to receive a perishable wreath, but we, we receive an imperishable wreath. So we're familiar with this, this whole concept of an enduring a certain thing for a particular time to, to get a desired reward, right? So so take your finances, for example. If you have a goal or if you want to pay off debt or various things of that nature, you set a goal and you try to strive towards that goal. And when you, when you're, when you are missing the mark or when you want to go buy that expensive thing, that, that purse or that phone or, or that tablet or whatever your, your fancy is, you keep your, you, you're reminded of your goal to keep you on focus. So maybe finances is not your thing. Maybe exercise is your thing, right? When you want to lose that 10 pound or you want to get summertime fine, right? When you're not when you're waking up early in the morning to go to the gym and, and you hit that snooze clock and, and the thing that, keep, that keeps you going, you say, I want to lose this 10 pounds. So we focus on our goals. So we endure kind of the, 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 the exercises or we endure the, the sacrifice of putting back to meet that financial goal. So we're similar with this concept. But if your heart is anything like mine, it becomes dull sometimes. And I don't always fully appreciate what it means to receive eternal life. So think about the trial that you're in right now. Think about 
what you have, what you have experienced in the past, right? A loved one dying, someone come with an a ill in your family, the deepest things, right? Think about the scars that that left behind and, and the relationships that that may have affected around you. And listen, what, listen to God's word and what it says about our eternal reward. Philippians chapter 3, verse 20 and 21 says, But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform the lowly body to be like his glorious body, by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. Revelation chapter 21 verse 4 says, He will wipe away every tear from my eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying or pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. So when we think about eternity, when we think about kind of the weight of the glory, right? So the things that we experience in this life, they are nothing, right, compared to what we will experience in eternity. We will get a glorified body. He will wipe away every tear from our eyes. When we think about the things that we mourn and, and, and the things that we weep about and the things that cause us pain, it will be no more. We will have a perfect world with the Lord. And what's so dope about Colossians chapter 1, verse 20, it tells us that Christ is reconciling all things to himself. So we don't only get to experience the, the fruit of reconciliation between us and God, but the cosmos, the world. He's reconciling all things unto himself. And that's a beautiful thing. So we can, we can say in unison with Paul in Romans chapter 8, verse 18, when he says, For I consider that the suffering of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. In 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 5, he says, For this light momentary affliction is preparing us for eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen, for the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. The other day, a couple weeks ago actually, I was watching the animation cartoon Sing with my daughter and her friend Logan. And in this movie, if you've ever seen it, the plot of the movie, this koala bear is trying to save his theater. So he puts on this talent showcase where he's offering a $100,000 reward to the participants. And there's a scene in the, in the movie where he, is, he, is, he has a potential investor to back the theater, and they're putting on a rehearsal. And in this rehearsal, they're singing and everything, and, and it's just a wonderful rehearsal. And these two bears, this mouse in the, in, in, in the movie, they, the mouse owes these two bears money, and the mouse is, 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 in the, is one of the participants in the showcase. And so the, the, the two bears catch whim of where the mouse is, and he's in the midst of rehearsing. So the bears bust into the door, and they see the mouse singing, and the mouse eventually points to this chest that's supposed to have this $100,000 reward in it. And so the, so the bears bust open this chest, and there's nothing in there but flyers. And so all the participants of this showcase they left with their heads tucked between their tails, deflated. And I tell this story to say that when all of our striving and persevering is done, when that proverbial trunk is open, we will not be deflated, but we will worship him because we will know that God kept his word and we will receive our reward, which is unbroken fellowship with God, with God and himself for all of eternity. Heaven is not heaven unless God is there. He is our reward. So remain steadfast in the faith, saints. Continue to strive to persevere in the saints in, in, in the faith in the midst of trials. So my first point is to remember your reward. 
Second point, realize the source of temptation. Realize the source of temptation. Verses 13, verse 13 says, Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil. He himself tempts no one. With every trial comes temptation. And James knew this very well. That's why he says, let no one say when he is tempted, not if he is tempted. So it's, it's inevitable that we will, we will experience temptation. When we lose our jobs, right, when money is tight, we are tempted to believe God is not our provider. When someone has hurt us physically or emotionally, we are tempted to seek revenge. Even when there is no known um, trial in our lives, we still experience temptation. James wants us to realize that God is, in fact, using trials to mature, mature us in the faith, but not using trials to tempt us to make a shipwreck of our faith. How do I know this? Verse 13b says, for God cannot be tempted with evil. He himself tempts no one. God is holy. Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 16, when he quotes Leviticus, he tells us that you shall be holy for I am holy. There is nothing within God's nature that would be drawn to an evil impulse. It's like asking a horse to fly. He can't do it. He doesn't have the ability to. It's not in his nature. And because of this reality, God cannot tempt anyone. To, to do this would be a denial of himself. And we see God's role very clearly distinguished in the temptation of Jesus and the suffering of Job. Matthew chapter 4 verse 1 says, Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. Job chapter 1 verse 12 says, And the Lord said to Satan, Behold, all that he has in your hands, only against him do not stretch out your hands. So Satan sent out from the presence of the Lord. So God is sovereign, therefore he allows it. But he is not the direct agent producing trials within, with the intent to tempt. That's the devil. But if we're honest, we have at some point blamed God for our temptation. Am I right? When trials come up, sometimes we blame God for our temptation. But we shouldn't be surprised by this tendency. Our first father, Adam, did it. Genesis chapter 3, verse 9 through 12 says, But the Lord God called to man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked. I hid myself, he said. Who told, you were, who told you you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, the woman you gave to be with me, he gave me the fruit of the, she gave me the fruit of the tree, and I ate. Right? So he passes the buck on to the woman, but ultimately it is God when he says, the woman whom you gave to be with me. So we see Adam, our first father, doing the same thing. In verse 14, James tells us that the source of our temptation is not God, but ourselves. Verse 14 says, but each person is tempted when he is lured or enticed by his own desire. The NASB says, carried away and enticed by his own desire. And the NIV, NIV, which I love, says, dragged away and enticed by his own desire. And James used a fishing metaphor, right? So if you guys are familiar with fishing, is that 
When the fisherman puts the bait on the hook, he throws his line in the water. And the fish, out of his hunger, takes the bait, and the fisherman drags the, the fish in. Desire here um, in the text or in the Bible can have a neutral meaning. But in this particular context, James means a fleshly desire. It has a sexual connotation to it. Or in a broader sense, it is any human longing for what God has prohibited. These desires are due to the indwelling sin within us. So we, we have been saved from the penalty of sin. We have been saved from the power of sin. But we are not yet saved from the presence of sin. So that's why we have to put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to fulfill its lust. And if we're going to follow Christ, we have to deny ourselves and take up our cross daily. So it's not the nagging spouse, the boring teacher, the nosy parent, the failing health, the bad traffic, the disobedient children, or the lady that got sassy with you in line at Kroger's that causes your temptation. It is you. It is me that causes our temptation. This is similar to what Paul says in Romans chapter 7 when he says, I will to do what I don't do and I do what I will not to. Verse 15 says, then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. And when sin, it is fully grown, brings forth death. An important distinction to make is that temptation or the desire in and of itself is not sin. It only becomes sin when we yield to that temptation. One commentator put it this way, Christian maturity is not indicated by the infrequency of temptation, but by the infrequency of succumbing to temptation. Sin causes havoc in our lives when it goes unchecked. We cannot have the, the Grand, Grand Canyon mentality when we say, hey, how close can we get to the edge of the Grand Canyon without falling in? No sane man says that. Can a man take fire into his bosom and not get burned? Absolutely not. So one of the ways that, that sin becomes full grown in our lives, it deceives us. It blinds us from the truth of our condition and our hearts grow cold. Hebrews chapter 3, verse 13 says, But exhort one another every day as long as it is called today that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Romans chapter 7, verse 11 says, For sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me, and through it killed me. And verse 13 says, Did, what, did that which is good, talking about the law, bring death to me? By no means. It was sin producing death in me through what is good in order that sin might be shown to be sin. I love the imagery here that James gives in, 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 the verse, in verse 14 and 15. He gives this motif of the life cycle, right? When we think about the origins of sin, it starts with temptation and it ends in death when sin matures in us. And we know based on life that, that, that growth, growth is subtle. The sin growth within us is subtle, so we have to beware of the drift. We have to beware of the illusion that everything is all right. How does this happen, right? We, we get saved, and we get into faith, and we get to a point where we feel like we know God's word, and we're serving in the ministry, and we got a good family, and the kids obedient, and the wife or the spouse or the husband, they're good, right? And we get to a point where, 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 where temptation come up, come up within our lives and we, we dismiss it because we're doing all this wonderful stuff for the Lord. 
but we have to be cognizant of the drift that may occur within our lives. Because here in James, temptation, it starts by temptation, and it grows to this place of death. It is subtle. It is subtle. So we don't play with sin. Romans chapter 6, verse 23 says it best. The wages of sin is death. So we don't play with sin. That's why I love the nurturing section in our community group study guide. It asks the question, what is your greatest current temptation? And how does the gospel speak to it? And I love this because the gospel is the solution that can address the issue before it's an issue. What do I mean by that? Because of the gospel, I have, been, I have a new heart whereby I can say yes to his righteousness and no to the fleshly desires within inside. So now when I'm having a conflict with my wife, I got to have a, a, a conversation or, uh, in our communication where it's intense, I can be quick to listen and slow to speak and slow to anger because the anger of man does not, does not produce the righteousness of God. And because of the gospel, God has imputed his righteousness within me. So I must reflect that same righteousness in my communication with my spouse. So the gospel, the gospel is the solution that, 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 that cuts temptation at its root before it becomes sin. So we must not play with our temptation. We must fight it at its root. My second point, we must realize the source of our temptation. It is not God, it is us. It is these fleshly desires that rage within us. So remember your reward. Realize the source of your temptation. And thirdly, in verse 16 through 18, it says, recognize who God is. God is a good giver. It reads, do not be deceived, my beloved brother. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Of his, of his own will, he brought, forth, he brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruit of his, cre- of his creatures. Don't be blinded by a different perspective. That's what James tells us in, his, in the opening phrase. God is a good giver. It's his, it's his nature to be good. God is good, and everything that comes from him is good. Genesis chapter 1, verse 31 says, And God saw everything that he made, and behold, it was very good. Matthew chapter 7, verse 9 through through 11 says, Of which of you, if his son asks him for bread, he will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, he will give him a serpent? If you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? So God is a good God, and everything that proceeds from him is good. And the Scripture tells us that there is no variation or shadow due to change. So God is unchanging. He is immutable. He is consistently good. What's the old saying? God is good all the time and all the time. God is good. Here's the argument I believe that James is trying to make. How can we say God tempts us when he is in fact a good God that gives good things to his children? And the greatest gift that he has given us is himself. The scripture says that of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth. Salvation is God's initiative. It was God that sent his son, Jesus, to die on the cross for our sins. 
John chapter 1, verse 11 through 13 says, He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all he did receive, but to all who did receive him, he believed, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of man, um, nor of the will of the flesh, excuse me, nor, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Salvation is God's initiative. Furthermore, let us consider how faithful and loving our Father is in light of our trials and temptation. In, in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, it says, No temptation has overtaken you that is common to men. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but with the temptation, he also provides a way of escape that you may be able to endure it. So God does not only know our limits, right? He snatches out of the situation before we hit our limits, and he provides the way of escape. In addition, let's, let's think about the manner in which he lived this life. When we think about our, our salvation and how he's sanctifying us and how he lived this life on earth, fulfilling all righteousness, Hebrews chapter 2, verse 17 and 18 says, Therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For, be for because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. God is helping us in time of temptation. He is not only providing a way of escape when we hit our limits, but he is helping us. The way that he lived his life on this earth is a testament of what type faithful savior that, he's, that he is. He is not some sterile God that sits in some sterile place up high who saved us, but he got down in the details of our lives and, 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 and saved us and, and, and feel the, the things that we feel in this body. Hebrews chapter 4 verse 14 through 16 says, since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the son of God, let us hold fast our confession. And check this out. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace in the time of need. God is faithful. God is faithful. When we are tempted, when we are going through trials, he is not tempting us. He has sent his son to, 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 to enwrap them in human flesh. And the way that he came down is a testament of his faithfulness. And we must receive that. And we don't have an excuse, right? He said that he, he was tempted in all respect and did not sin. So not only he's comforting us through these scriptures, but he is holding us accountable that we can, that we can, um, that we can fight our temptation that we don't have to succumb to it, that we don't have to yield to it. But furthermore, this is the part that I, that I, that I think is, is, is so dope. Hebrews chapter 7, verse 25. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercessions for them. So God is not, he did not only come to this earth to save us, but now in his resurrected form and sitting at the right hand of the throne of God, he is making intercessions for us, right? When I'm lusting, right? When, I'm, when, I'm, when I have a, a bad day at work or, 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 or when, when I'm having conflict with my wife or when, my, when Skylar is not being obedient, God is making intercessions on my behalf 
so that I may remain faithful. First John chapter 2, verse 1 says, My little children, I am writing, things, writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. Think about an advocate, right? If someone experienced cancer or a loved one that experienced cancer, they know all of the trials that come with that, whether it be um, just the physical pain or, or you know, the finances being restrained because of all the chemo treatments and just everything that goes along with that process, right? So either when that person passes away or when that person actually beat cancer, that person is the biggest advocate, right? They go on and, and start fundraisers and raise money and some run for office to kind of find this cure for cancer. Now think about our Savior. He wrapped himself in human flesh, right? Without sin, he endured temptation in the wilderness in every respect. And now he's interceding on our behalf, but he is advocating for us. And the basis of his advocacy is because he know what it means to be a human being. He know what it means to be tempted. He know what it means to have those trials. So we can take comfort and that Christ is interceding on our behalf and that Christ is our advocate. Amen? Amen? Let us pray. Father God in heaven, we thank you. We praise you, Lord, for who you are and all that you do, oh God. We thank you for your word. Lord God, help us, oh Father, to reflect on our lives, oh God, and as we experience trials within our lives, Lord God, help us to remember our reward. And as those trials bump up against our lives, oh God, I pray, oh Father, that we will be tempted, oh Lord. But help us, oh Father, to not blame our temptation on you. But Lord God, that we would, we would look to you, oh Father, for help because you provide a way of escape. You, oh Father, intercede on our behalf, oh God. You are our advocate. So we thank you, Lord, and we praise you. In Jesus' name, amen.